0: <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. What? You may need... Welcome. Good morning. Good morning,
1: April
0: Fool. Patrick <laughs> Casella didn't take Mike bait. Good morning. Happy April Fool's Day. Those of you on the sixth floor may... Um, May appreciate uh, some handiwork of our resident April Fool. I have to go up and see what that might be. Um, So we are in April, which is exciting, and we are deep in our best grand rounds of the year when our our graduating senior residents present their scholarly work. Uh, We'll have a break next week when Dr. Uh, Wendy Gladstone gives a talk on when patient care includes going to court. Dr. Gladstone is here this morning, so we have a couple of weeks of Dr. Gladstone here, which is excellent. Uh, I don't often call out specific clinical programs, but I wanna, uh, many of you hopefully, if you didn't get a a message in the mail from New Hampshire Healthy Families, one of the Medicaid MCOs, about a program called Raising Well, which is a free program uh, to help uh, parents establish healthy habits for their children. Uh, with worries about overweight or obesity. So uh, not just for primary care. If you have any questions about this, check with me or check with, uh, hopefully all the folks in GAP got this letter in primary care. Eileen, no? So so from New Hampshire Healthy Families, something I think is important broadly for all the kids we care for. On our good news front, uh, I wanted to share news that we just received this week. So we've touted the successes of the neonatal abstinence transition program piloted by a, a huge team, Bonnie and Allison and Sean Ralston and folks in the ICN and the ward and nurses and a huge team to transition most of those babies, Bridget's on that team, I'm, I'm sure transitioning most of those babies out of the intensive care nursery into the ward and establishing better, uh, better care paradigms that uh, um, make a more stable experience for them. And that um, abstract was submitted by Alice under the American Association, Association of American Medical Colleges, AAMC, noting the decreased length of stay from 18.2 to 13.6 days to um, the number of transfers between units dropping from 2.1 on average to 1.5 and the cost for admission decreasing from 20,000 to 25 to 11,318 with no increase in 30-day all-cause readmissions and better patient satisfaction through qualitative surveys. So that's in and of itself successful, but the WAMC was smart enough to recognize this as a 2014 Challenge Award winner. So that was a team effort that is getting national national recognition, appropriately so. So lots of people on the team. I've called out some, but give thanks to them as they, as they come along. So on to the best part of the day. We have uh, Dr. Corinna Reynolds uh, going to present our grand rounds. Corinna is a native of Worcester and New England, who uh, stayed in New England at uh, Bates College for her undergraduate degree and Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston for her doctorate of medicine. After which she subsequently joined us here in the pediatric residency at Chad in 2012. Uh, Corinna is um, headed to Wisconsin upon graduation but is um, really taking an interest and taking the lead, taking charge on this area of question that she's discussing today, defining consent in an adolescent population. Um, She may be nervous this morning, but she already presented on this topic at the Pediatric Academic Society's uh, meeting in a platform last year in May, and um, she doesn't realize the luminaries in adolescent health uh, who are in that room which she was presenting to, and she may not realize how impressed they all were by her presentation, but they certainly spoke to myself and Sutansky and others. So, Karina, this is going to be a breeze, even even with a murderous row of professors, including Drs. Boyle, Dr. Dr. Maudlin joining us today, and others. Welcome, Karina. You'll do great. Hello.
1: Uh,
2: Thank you very much. So I'm gonna start off by talking about a few cases. So our first case is a 15-year-old female. She has a history of depression and anxiety, and she's being followed by a counselor. She discloses to her counselor that she's sexually active with her boyfriend, who is also 15 years old. And her counselor reports her to Child Protective Services for statutory rape. Now, for the purposes of this talk, Statutory rape is going to refer to someone who's having sex under the legal age of consent. Our second case is a 14-year-old who's coming into clinic to talk about contraception. She's coming in with her mother, and her mother makes the comment that she's so excited that her daughter finally has a boyfriend. When asked, the patient discloses that her boyfriend is her 17-year-old neighbor, and the physician calls Child Protective Services for statutory rape. Our last case comes from a discussion with a mother. She asks, my son is a senior in high school and he's just turned 17. His girlfriend of 18 months is a junior, but she's only 15. Should I be worried that he could get into legal trouble? And I didn't have time to put this slide in, but I was actually at a wedding this past weekend just talking to someone there and um, talking about what I do. And she said, oh, you're a pediatrician in New Hampshire. When I was doing my clinical uh, rotations through my degree to get a child counselor position, I was told during my training that if anyone under the age of 16 tells me they're sexually active, I have to call Child Protective Services. You guys have very interesting laws in New Hampshire. So what I'm going to be talking about today is something that has become a bit of a hot-button issue recently, and that is the intersection between the law regarding the age of consent for sexual activity and confidential care for adolescent patients. Some of you in this room may have been very involved in the discussions that have been going on over the past few years, and some of you may be blissfully unaware that this topic is even out there. (laughs) But I hope that at the end of this hour, You'll come away from this sort of knowing where the facts are in this case, and then also where the gray areas exist. So I don't have any financial disclosures, uh, but I do have um, a couple of other disclosures. I am not impartial on this topic at all. I have very strong feelings about this, which I hope will be pretty clear. I don't wanna sort of hoodwink anyone on this. But I did try to present many sides of this issue. And then second, and most importantly, I am not a lawyer. So don't take anything that I'm saying as anything resembling legal advice. Um, I have spoken with lawyers throughout this, um, this research, but as you'll see going forward, even in talking with people in the law community, you don't always get a crystal clear answer. So I'm gonna start off by briefly talking about adolescence and sexual behavior. And then we'll then move on to the laws, both across the country and in New Hampshire, um, looking at a couple of studies that I did during my residency. We'll take a brief detour through Kansas and see if there's anything we can learn from the experiences in that state. And then we'll try and talk about what to do moving forward and hopefully have time for a pretty good discussion at the end. So I'm sorry to all the parents in the room, but this this is data from 2013 that was published in Pediatrics. And what you see is that as adolescents age, more and more of them are becoming sexually active. By age 15, nationally, one in five have had sex. However, this number varies widely depending on where you practice. In Mississippi, 42% of ninth graders are currently sexually active. So regardless of whether you consider sexual behavior in the adolescent population to be a normal part of development or whether you think it's abnormal, the fact of the matter remains that our patients are having sex. So this is additional data that was published in the same exact study, and what you see is the percent of respondents in blue bars who are reporting non-consensual sex. So while there are very low numbers of 10-year-olds who are sexually active, a very high number of them are reporting non-consensual sexual activity, more than 60%, which is an enormous number. But then there's a pretty rapid drop-off by the teenage years, such that only 10% of 13-year-olds are reporting non-consensual sexual activity, which is still an extremely high number and really should make all of us cringe. But what I do want to point out is that even our youngest patients, the 12 and 13-year-olds who are reporting sexual activity, the vast majority of them are reporting, are self-reporting consensual sexual activity. So who exactly are most of our patients sleeping with? When studies look at middle school and high school students and try to answer this question, most of the results show that a majority are having sex with similarly aged peers or someone who's within three years of their own birthday. So this is a graph that's adapted from a 2002 study from national survey data that shows that as adolescents age, they're more likely to report having a partner who's either the same age or a bit younger than themselves, which are the bars in blue. However, even the youngest patients surveyed, those 13 and younger, report that a majority of their sexual partners are within, are within three years of their birthday. However, this youngest group does have the highest reported um, percent of partners who are more than four years older, the bars in green. And I would argue that this is where statutory rape legislation really needs to focus on our youngest patients who are having sex with people who are significantly older than they are. In addition to being sexually active, our patients are exposed to, afflicted by, and transmitting STDs. So this is the most recent CDC data from 2013 on chlamydia, and what you see is that the 15- to 19-year-old age group has the second highest rate of reported cases, and it's only slightly behind the next age cohort. So I could continue to show you data on pediatric (coughs) patients and sexual activity and STIs, but what I've tried to show is representative of most of the data. Our adolescent patients are sexually active. For the most part, they're doing so with similarly aged peers, and they carry a high burden of the STI case rate. This is also a time when our adolescent patients are becoming more independent. And as healthcare providers, we start kicking parents out of the room during well-child checks so that we can have confidential conversations with adolescents. All major health organizations who care for adolescents have affirmed the necessity for confidential care in this population. And there's been a number of studies looking at confidential care um, in adolescents. A very well cited study from 2002 that was published in JAMA asked adolescents that if parental notification were required before they could obtain a prescription for a contraceptive, 59% of adolescent females would stop seeking care altogether, or they would delay a significant portion of that care. Importantly, though, only 1% would actually stop
1: having sex. (laughs)
2: So the conclusion from this study and others like it is that limiting confidential care in this population can have significant health consequences. So I would argue that one of our roles as pediatricians is to really help our adolescent patients through this developmental stage. They're doing a whole lot of things that we would prefer them not to do, but it's important for them to still be presenting to care and to still be able to tell um, their pediatrician about what they're doing. But luckily for adolescents, pediatricians are not the only group of people who are looking out for their well-being. And this can be seen by the myriad of laws across the country um, that are focused on adolescents. To help protect them against predatory child sexual abuse, we have the age of consent laws that we'll be spending a lot of time during this talk talking about. We also have the mandatory reporting laws. Because our adolescents carry a high burden of the STI um, case rate, there are laws across the country that allow minors to consent to care for sexually transmitted infections, which we'll also be touching upon. And then to try and foster autonomy and dependence and help them grow into well-functioning adults, we have laws that also guarantee confidentiality. But what I'm going to be talking about for the remainder of this talk, really, is how sometimes these laws come into direct conflict and how if you were trying to follow the laws verbatim possible to do so and why I think this does a great disservice to our adolescent patients so when I first heard about the cases that had been mentioned before the beginning of the talk um, as an intern my initial thoughts were am I supposed to be reporting my adolescent patients to Child Protective Services Um, I can tell you that way more than 20 percent of my ninth grade patients were sexually active And the thought of reporting them just for this fact um, seemed to be a bit out of proportion. But I didn't really know what the laws were in New Hampshire. So looking at age of consent for sexual activity in New Hampshire, it is a misdemeanor sexual assault for anyone who's under the age of 16 to have sex with someone who is less than four years older. So if a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old are having sex, the 16-year-old could be accused of committing a misdemeanor sexual assault. If both are under the age of 16, then both could be accused of committing a misdemeanor. But what if the age differential is more? So in New Hampshire, it is felonious sexual assault for anyone under the age of 16 to have sex with someone who's more than four years older than them. Or for anyone to have sex with someone who's under the age of 13. So if a 12 and a 13 year old are engaged in sexual activity, the 13 year old could be accused of committing a felony. If both are under the age of 13, then both could be accused of committing a felony. Now in New Hampshire, and really across the country, typically a conviction for felonious sexual assault, and in some cases misdemeanor, typically carries with it a lifetime register as a sex offender. So if you are concerned about statutory rape and you do call Child Protective Services, what happens? So in New Hampshire, unless the accused perpetrator is living in the same household as the reported victim, Child Protective Services typically does not do an investigation. This is a criminal complaint, so Child Protective Services calls law enforcement. Even if Child Protective Services does open up an investigation, This is still a criminal complaint, so it is still a phone call to local law enforcement. Um, No, this isn't advancing. Okay, there we go. Um, What typically happens um, for the police is that they come out to the house to begin their investigation and any semblance of maintaining patient confidentiality at that point really does go out the window because the police will be informed or the parents will be informed as to why the police have shown up on their doorstep if both minors involved are under the age of consent typically the parents don't demand legal action because both parties would be accused of committing some type of crime there may or may not be an interview at the child advocacy center which is where all forensic interviews of children take place. And importantly, that police report that's generated is kept on file and is never destroyed. So in addition to lots of thoughts I have about this, um, one thing that left me a little bit confused about this law has to do with the age of consent for treatment for sexually transmitted infections. And that's because in New Hampshire, The law states that any minor who's 14 years of age or older, without the knowledge or consent of the parent or guardian, can consent to care for a sexually transmitted infection. So I found this very confusing and, frankly, just hypocritical. I can treat a 14-year-old for a sexually transmitted infection, not tell their parents or guardian about it, and be operating completely within the bounds of the law However, the act which got that patient into my door may have very well have been illegal, and some would argue that that act alone would constitute filing a report with Child Protective Services. So given that the laws in New Hampshire seemed to be quite discrepant in regards to care for the adolescent patient, I started a study with um, Kathy Shubkin looking at these laws across the country. So how do we go about doing this? Uh, So all laws are publicly available and found online. So we went through each state statute to determine the age of consent for STI care and the age of consent for sexual activity. Um, For age of consent for STI care, we use this as a proxy for other sexual health care. And this is because not every state mandates at what age a patient can consent to contraceptive care, for example, and it's always not easy to find at what age um, a state considers a minor to be emancipated, for example. So we use this as a proxy. We also asked of the law, is this STI care going to be confidential, or is it not guaranteed to be confidential? And then for the age of consent for sexual activity, we also asked if there was a Romeo and Juliet clause attached to this legislation. So a Romeo and Juliet clause grants an exception to the age of consent for sexual activity law, such that if two people are close in age, even if one of them or both of them are under the age of consent, they can't be prosecuted. So for our study, we termed this a close in age exemption. So what were our results, starting with the age of consent for STI treatment? So when we look across the country, there are 39 states, and these are the states in white, that allow all minors to consent to STI care. The states in yellow define that a patient must be at least the age of 12, which includes Vermont, and the states in blue define that age as 14, which includes New Hampshire. In green is South Carolina, which is the state with with the oldest age of consent at 16. For this map, I've overlaid cross-hatching over the states in which the law goes on to further state that a healthcare provider may inform the legal guardian of that STI care. So in the states with the cross-hatching, a minor may still uh, consent to care for an, a sexually transmitted infection, and you don't have to inform the parent or legal guardian, but you may inform the legal guardian and be protected for breaching confidentiality under that law. So you'll notice that both New Hampshire and Vermont do not have any cross hatching. So this means that in our states of practice, in Vermont, if a patient age 12 reports, or in New Hampshire, if a 14 year old reports for sexually transmitted infection care, By law, that care is supposed to be completely confidential. Looking back down to the south at South Carolina, which is the oldest state at the age of 16, when we look at the age of consent for sexual activity map, we see a switch to a much older demographic. So before, 16 was the um, oldest age of consent for STI care, and now it's really the youngest age of consent. Uh, Those states in green list the age of consent as 17 and in red as 18 However, there are some very confusing exceptions to this. So I've again put some cross-hatching over states But this is when that age um, The close-in age exemption comes into play, but unfortunately what this means varies significantly from state to state so in mississippi the age of consent is sixteen but if you're younger than sixteen years old you can have sex with anyone who's within three years of your birthday however in delaware the age of consent is eighteen but a sixteen-year-old or a seventeen-year-old can have sex with anyone under the age of thirty because that's what delaware defines as close in age <laughs> So, yeah, and, In Florida, um, which is my home state, if you're 12 or older, you can have sex with anyone under the age of 18. New Hampshire does not have a close-in-age exemption, but Vermont does. And the close-in-age exemption for Vermont is that if you're 15, you can have sex with anyone who's under the age of 19. So we then wanted to examine the disparity between these two laws, the age of consent for sexual activity and the age of consent for STI care. So when we overlay the two maps or the two laws, what you see is that South Carolina is the only state in the country in which the laws are not discrepant. In South Carolina, you have to be 16 years old to consent to STI care, and you have to be 16 years old to uh, legally have sex. For the rest of the country, it's a bit more confusing so in purple are the states in which there's no close in age exemption for sexual activity and the age that a patient can consent to STI care is less than the age of consent for sexual activity so you can easily have a patient who's presenting for care and it's legally protected STI care but the act which got them in the door was technically illegal the states in white are a bit trickier These are the states that do have a close in age exemption. So if you're trying to figure out if the act which got your patient into the door was illegal, it's dependent on your patient's age, the age of their partner, and your state's law. So it still might have been illegal, but it might not have been. So what did we conclude from this part of our research project? So there are 49 states that have either completely or potentially discordant laws across the country. South Carolina's law, uh, or South Carolina, is not discrepant, but it also has the oldest age of consent for STI care that's probably not serving, uh, or is probably missing a fair number of patients. There's also wide variation between the state laws with both the in their definition of statutory rate. Some states had what seems to be a logical close in age exemption where the age differential had to be two or three years between the partners. But as we heard, there are some states that define close in age very differently and that still may not cover our young adolescent patients, that may not cover a 14-year-old or even a 15-year-old who's having sex with a similarly aged peer. So I would argue that that isn't really a close in age exemption. So to me, what I came away from this was with a feeling that the laws really don't make much sense across the country and just seemed to be extremely discrepant and variable. There was one thing, though, that was consistent throughout when we did this study. And that was where the age of consent for sexual activity laws were found in the state statutes. So in all 50 states, the age of consent for sexual activity law is part of the criminal code. And it's underneath various subheadings, but for the most part, it's found under the sexual assault subheading. So this brought up some interesting questions and a theme that has really come up again and again over the past few years with the multiple discussions that have been going on. And that's because, or the the theme is, that because the age of consent laws are found under the sexual assault heading in New Hampshire, if statutory rape has occurred, therefore sexual assault has occurred, therefore sexual abuse has occurred, And as mandatory reporters, we are therefore required to file a report with Child Protective Services. So at the heart of our question is, does statutory rape always mean that sexual abuse has occurred? If you have a patient who's presenting for state protected legal STI care, but they're under the age of consent, must you report to Child Protective Services for sexual abuse? what if they're coming in for contraceptive care or what if they're coming in for a well child check could you be accused of violating the child abuse reporting guidelines by not reporting them to child protective services well these questions have actually been posed before and in 2004 all major medical groups who treat adolescent patients uh, signed on to the following position paper it was published under the Journal of Adolescent Health underneath the title of Protecting Adolescents, uh, which I really think is what at the heart of what we are all trying to do. So part of the statement reads as follows. Sexual activity and sexual abuse are not synonymous. Confidential care is critical in this population. And that sexual abuse can be identified after performing a careful clinical assessment and that reporting to Child Protective Services should occur after this careful clinical assessment has identified other concerns for sexual abuse. So while I agree wholeheartedly really with everything that's in this position paper, this is not an edict from up on high, and there may very well be people who feel differently or disagree with some of the statements in this paper. So a few of us have continued to have discussions in the background regarding is underage sexual activity synonymous with abuse, or to put it another way, do we have to report our adolescent patients? So to have a broader understanding of the opinions of providers uh, throughout New Hampshire, we started a second study looking at the opinions of providers across the country. So the purpose of this second study was to investigate the following questions. Do New Hampshire providers know the laws regarding age of consent? And to ask this, we asked a variety of true-false questions. Our second objective was to determine how New Hampshire providers apply the laws. And I know this is a little bit blurry, but this is um, what uh, you saw if you did the survey. So for example a 15 year old and a 17 year old are having sex your patient reports that the sex was consensual Drugs or alcohol were not involved. There was no violence or coercion After counseling them for health and safety you would do the following And if you wanted to report to multiple places if you wanted to report to the Guardian and to child protective services You could click both boxes for example, and then there was an option to report to no one our final objective was to examine if New Hampshire providers uh, believed the laws needed to be changed. So what were our results? So we had a pretty good smattering of respondents. We had 260 people start the survey. More than 75% said that they were associated with either pediatrics, family medicine, or OBGYN. Uh, half of the respondents were either MDs or PhDs. And most had been in training for a good amount of time, so more than 60% reported that they'd been in practice for between 5 and 30 years. So for the first objective, do New Hampshire providers know the laws regarding age of consent? But unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the answer was no. For the question regarding whether a 15-year-old can engage in sexual penetration with a 17-year-old, 75% of our sample got it wrong. Age of consent is 16 in New Hampshire, so this is technically illegal. For the same question, but now with a 15-year-old and a 15-year-old, 82% of our sample got it wrong. And when we look at the consent law for STI care, asking respondents whether it is legal to treat a 14-year-old for an STI without parental consent, We did a little bit better with 50% of our study getting it right. So we concluded from this part of our study that New Hampshire providers we surveyed do not know the laws regarding age of consent. When we move on to our second objective, which looked at how New Hampshire providers apply the laws, I've divided this into four different graphs. So what you'll see um, is that each sexual pair has its own color So the 12 year old who's having sex with a 22 year old will be in blue The 14 year old and the 17 year old will be in red, etc And I've divided the graphs based on where the report would be made And just a reminder the numbers that you're going to see reported are percentages of respondents And it won't add up to hundred as the respondents could select multiple places to report So for reports made to a guardian, only 54% of respondents would report the 12 and the 22-year-old having sex to the guardian. Only 54%. Fewer would report the 14 and 17-year-old and fewer the two 15-year-olds. Almost the same number of respondents would report two 13-year-olds having sex as would report the 12 and the 22-year-old to the guardian. When looking at reporting to Child Protective Services, Almost all respondents would report the 12 and the 22-year-old. But the numbers really fell off for the other pairs. I found it very interesting how respondents treated the 12 and the 22-year-old and the 13 and the 13-year-old similarly in regards to reporting to the guardian, but very differently in regards to reporting to Child Protective Services. When reporting to law enforcement, a higher number of people would report the 12 and 22 year old to law enforcement than would report to the guardian. I'm not sure if this is because respondents aren't comfortable having conversations in front of the parents or if they thought that this would maintain the patient-doctor relationship or what. Again, very low numbers though for the other pairs in regards to reporting uh, to local law enforcement. Just to uh, remind you though, A report to Child Protective Services in the state of New Hampshire um, ends up being a report to the police. So I don't think that these two graphs necessarily should be exactly the same. I can certainly understand um, situations where you would report to CPS and either not make that call to law enforcement yourself. Um, But it is important to point out that the end result of a report to CPS is a report to the police. With the option to report to none, there wasn't a single respondent who wouldn't report the 12- and the 22-year-old having sex. Every single person who responded thought that someone should be made aware of this relationship, whether it was the guardian or Child Protective Services or some combination. But for the other pairings, there were high numbers of respondents who wouldn't report these relationships, especially the two 15-year-olds who were having sex. So I think these graphs are fascinating and I could stare at them all day because (laughs) (laughs) what I came away with was that New Hampshire healthcare providers really treat all of these pairs very differently. The reporting patterns are different for each, but the law only treats them differently in one way. These are a misdemeanor and this is a felony and that is the only difference in the law in New Hampshire. So finally, for our third objective, uh, do New Hampshire providers think the law needs to be changed? So this is what you saw if you did uh, the survey. So a law states that a misdemeanor sexual assault has occurred if someone between the ages of 13 and 16 is engaging in sex with anyone who's within four years of their own age. For example, it's illegal for a 15-year-old to have sex with a 15-year-old. Do you think the above law needs to be changed? And these were our results. So 77% of respondents stated that the law needed to be changed. We did ask for and receive a fair number of comments um, for this question, Just because, so from a simple yes-no answer, it's a little bit unclear whether people thought the law needed to be changed, but in fact the age of consent needed to be older. So when we go in and look at the comments, we see that of the people who responded yes and left a comment, 96% of them indicated that the age of consent for sexual activity either needed to be lowered or needed to include some type of close-in-age exemption. So overwhelmingly, those who answered yes did so because they thought the law was too restrictive. So I want to show you some of these comments. Police reporting our involvement does harm to adolescents. It's destructive to the therapeutic relationship. I don't think it is practical. Since I don't understand or know the consequences, I doubt my patients do this law is ridiculous as many high school age students would be engaging in misdemeanor sexual assault I cannot see how this law protects teenagers and it does not leave room for individual case-by-case decisions so there were some gender specific comments that um, made me a bit mad (laughs) I don't believe most 15 year-old girls can consent it is a good idea for girls aged 12 to 16 not to engage in sexual penetration So this is not a gender-specific topic. If it's not crystal clear at this point, there is nothing in the law to suggest that males are always the perpetrators and females are always the victims. Unfortunately, if we lived in Idaho, that would not be the case because Idaho is the only state in the country in which only females can be the victims of statutory rape. So there were some comments on the other side, arguing that the age of consent laws should either remain the same or that the age should be increased. Too young to understand, to consent or understand the ramifications of consent. It should be illegal no matter the age of the partner. Children do not have the maturity to engage in sexual behavior and are ill-prepared to protect themselves regarding pregnancy and STIs. The laws are in place to protect children. What typically happens is it opens up communication and allows for elements of coercion, force, or substance involvement to be explored. For our last question, uh, respondents were shown a summary of the age of consent for STI care, stating that anyone 14 years or older may consent for diagnosis and treatment of STIs, and the law explicitly states, that the legal guardian does not need to give consent or be notified do you think the above law needs to be changed so our results showed that fifteen percent of respondents thought that the law should be changed while eighty five percent agreed with the laws as written and the comments for this were very interesting Um, of those who responded yes and left a comment half stated that the law needed to be changed because the age of consent for STI care needed to be lower than the age of 14. The other half thought that either the age of consent for STI care needed to be higher or that the parents should be notified. So while 15% of respondents thought that the law needed to be changed, a good proportion of those thought that it needed to be changed to be more inclusive. And again, looking at some of these comments, We must be able to treat STIs at any age without mandatory reporting in order to maintain the health and safety of this population. I am grateful that I am able to treat patients in this age range confidentially without putting them at potential risk from irate family members. I think it is important for the child to receive treatment and that the parent being informed may stop the child from seeking treatment, although I hate this as a parent. (laughs) And then on the other side, parents are held legally responsible for many areas of their under 18-year-old's life. It seems odd that keeping something as serious from an STI could be done. I think not doing so worsens family communication. There are many complications that can arise from STDs, some of them life-altering. Parents should be able to be notified to make sure their child has appropriate follow-up care. If the current law states that a child under the age of 16 having intercourse is a misdemeanor sexual assault, then parental notification should be required for STD evaluations. So what do we conclude from this study? So New Hampshire providers do not know the laws regarding the age of consent. (laughs) The age of consent for sexual activity law should be changed, either to include a close in age exemption or to make it less restrictive. New Hampshire providers agree with the age of consent for STI care. And finally, New Hampshire providers apply the laws regarding age of consent for sexual activity differently depending on the case. This suggests that sex under the age of consent or statutory rate is not synonymous with sexual abuse according to most New Hampshire providers and that reporting to Child Protective Services is really dependent on the individual case. So while doing research uh, for this project I came across some very interesting news articles regarding Kansas. It turns out that back in the mid-2000s the state of Kansas was having a very public debate about statutory rape laws and mandatory reporting that I think can really help to inform the discussions that we've been having here. So this is Phil Klein. He was the Attorney General of Kansas in the mid-2000s. He has now been disbarred and cannot practice in the state of Kansas. Um, In part because of what we'll be talking about, in part for other reasons as well. But so his office, shortly after he um, started his tenure, was posed the following question. Under what circumstances is a doctor who provides abortion procedures required to report rape and or sexual abuse of a minor? So for a bit of background, in Kansas, the age of consent for sexual activity was and is currently 16 years old, with no close in age exemption. So technically, anyone under the age of 16 who's having sex is in violation of that state statute. So it is exactly the same law that we currently have in New Hampshire. Although the Attorney General's office was asked specifically regarding abortions, the AG's office produced a rather sweeping statement that read, sexual intercourse by minors under the age of 16, whether voluntary or involuntary, was injurious as a matter of law. Abortion clinics called upon to perform an abortion for a girl under the age of 16 are put on notice that, as a matter of law, an injury as a result of sexual abuse has occurred. Such a doctor is obligated to report this injury to the proper authorities. Other situations that might trigger a reporting obligation include teenagers who are sexually active, seeking birth control, treatment of a sexually transmitted disease, or medical attention for a pregnancy. So this legal opinion, which as the Attorney General of the state was basically enforceable at this point, created a pretty big outcry. So physicians organizations, Planned Parenthood, the clinic of former Kansas physician George Tiller, and actually the city of New York, all filed suit against this decision. (laughs) And now New York got involved. um, Arguing that this opinion really violated adolescent confidentiality rights. And the case made its way through the court system and ultimately to the federal district court in Kansas, which issued a decision in 2006. So they issued a permanent injunction against the attorney general's opinion and they found that underage sexual activity is not inherently injurious, that a mandatory reporter must have reason to suspect injury and that the injury was a direct result of the sexual activity, and that to require reporting would violate a minor's right to privacy. So the court went on in its decision to define consensual underage sexual activity as sex that occurs without coercion, without any appreciable power difference between the couple, and that the age differential had to be three years or less. That in Kansas, there was no close in age exemption. So the federal court was making this decision not based on Kansas state statute, but rather it seemed that they were trying to be logical in deciding what was a peer-to-peer consensual relationship. So I have to say that I've struggled to determine how the law in Kansas at that time was different than the laws in New Hampshire. And I do wonder if a similar challenge was brought in New Hampshire, if a similar finding would ensue. Unfortunately, at this point, I do think it would take some significant legal action to change the law. So I undertook this research project in part as an advocacy project because I really believe that um, the laws as written in new hampshire are doing a disservice to our young people i don't think that any provider in new hampshire whether it's a physician or a counselor or a nurse or anyone should feel that they have to report to child protective services just based solely on this law but unfortunately my desire to have conversations at, at the highest levels didn't get very far after calling and emailing numerous states reps and senators, I couldn't get anyone to really have this conversation. When I called our local district attorney's office to discuss the laws in New Hampshire and to find out what happens from the prosecution and law enforcement side, I was told that someone would be calling me back in a few days to discuss this.
1: Well, a few days later, I had an
2: email from our hospital's risk management team wondering why I was calling the DA's office. So after getting over the shock of the DA's office, found out where I worked, and then called the hospital's risk management team on me, um, I tried to explain what I was doing with this research project. Well, I was told that as a mandatory reporter, I must follow state laws, and then I was given information stating that anyone under the age of eighteen needed to be reported to child protective services. <laughs> which is not what the law says at all. So this isn't a topic that people really want to talk about. But I do <laughs> yeah, but I do think that a discussion really needs to be had because I do worry that at some point someone is going to be reported and that it will end up in a very messy lawsuit, because confidentiality has been unnecessarily breached. So how do we move forward? How do we counsel our adolescent patients? I tell my adolescent patients, after I kick the parents out of the room, that I'm only going to breach their confidentiality if someone is hurting them, if they're hurting themselves, or if they're going to hurt someone else. And I truly believe that if someone, a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old, tells me that they're engaged in a consensual sexual encounter with someone who is a similar age, and that if I have done my job as a pediatrician and screened for sexual abuse and not come up with any red flags, I truly believe I should not be reporting that patient to Child Protective Services and violating their confidentiality. But. Do I need to tell them that someone else might be reporting them if they were to disclose this activity? How do we provide confidential STI care with the laws that we currently have in our state? I think this is a conversation that we really should continue to have. So to summarize, our patients are sexually active. Underage sexual activity is not synonymous with sexual abuse. The age of consent laws in New Hampshire and across the country are confusing, illogical, and completely discrepant. The laws in New Hampshire are not particularly well-known and are applied on a case-by-case basis. The age of consent for sexual activity law in New Hampshire should be changed. And finally, reporting to CPS should be done after a careful clinical evaluation where there are additional concerns for sexual abuse. So I want to thank everyone who did the survey, everyone who's helped throughout these years, my husband Jeff especially, and then I wanted to end on a funny note, so...
0: So you mentioned that Idaho has the language where um, females are
3: always the victim. I was wondering if you came across any verbiage in looking at the state laws, state-by-state, about um, same-sex relationships.
2: Oh, so that's a very good question. Um, There used to be laws that penalized sodomy more than other offenses. Um, I cannot say for 100% that all of those have been removed from the books.
0: Thank you.
1: That was wonderful. Thank you.
0: I'm sorry you had
1: so much trouble with your attempts at advocacy. And I would just like to point out to you and also to the audience that when you have concerns like that, a, a wonderful resource is the New Hampshire Pediatric Society mm-hmm. because we can put you in touch with somebody in the
3: state who's working on similar issues and help you figure out how to negotiate advocacy channels. And sometimes you do a, Yes. Thank you. That's the I have to agree. That was a terrific um, melding of all the different um,
1: interests um, in this topic, and I, and I can't underscore too much your final conclusion that a careful clinical assessment is really what's needed. That we can't just have. At all the black and white applications here. We have to really not only assess um, it, the ages, but the coercion, the developmental status of the and also whether the parents are generally being protected, mm-hmm. or in fact, the parents may be exposing
0: this to very significant And so that's a really large clinical assessment and requires both a fair bit of skill with adolescents and a fair bit of time. So I, I just applied to that conclusion. I'd be interested to know how you deal at this institution with the issue of billing you see an no. adolescent with a potentially compromising bill.
2: That's a I don't know if I can speak to that. I, I can say that there are federal laws that are supposed to mandate that Confidential care for adolescents happens on every single level, including the billing side of things, so that parents are not getting a um, explanation of benefits thing in the mail when their child has been tested for chlamydia. But I'm not sure how we handle this. In again, this.
0: You can definitely hide behind not being a lawyer. I think uh, <laughs> payers struggle with this, and there's a there's a good faith uh, organization that's trying to grapple with that issue because ultimately the the contract is between the the policyholder, the parent, and the, and the insurance company. And so there isn't actually protection in a lot of levels that would prevent the explanation of benefits from going. Our institutions, EOBs, are fairly nondescript, but we've not engaged in anything specific around how to hide those. Um, and California, however, just passed a law, I just heard about at the Adolescent Medicine Meeting, that does prevent those explanation methods to make sense. But it's, it's tricky. It's tricky territory. Kathy, clinically, I don't know what you, I mean, sometimes we refer on to... Yeah, so if,
3: um, we spend a lot of time talking about the breach of confidentiality with the billing system, that while yeah. I'm going to provide confidential care, I cannot guarantee that the institution or your insurance company <laughs> will not reach it so that if the adolescent in particular is very concerned about it, we will refer to Planned Parenthood. will guarantee confidential services. Medicaid in the state will not um, release the DOB to the parents, So for my Medicaid patients, it's actually much easier than your children in the audience. Your children are the one that I have a harder time. <laughs> so the other place I worry about confidentiality is the state mandated report of positive Cultures and infections, mm-hmm. and how
1: they
3: treat partners, and so between oh, yeah.
1: insurance
3: and between the state trying to protect partners,
2: you're just like, I don't know how this. It doesn't get back to the despite me
3: trying okay. to keep it confident.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No, absolutely. Yeah, I had a I had a patient come in um, who said. I was sitting at home on Thursday, and my mom got a call from the state saying, someone who identified your son as a sexual partner has tested positive for chlamydia. So so he's like, so that's why I'm here today. And I was like, oh, that's great.
0: It's a bad day.
1: Um, That was fabulous. in and see their non-primary, or I'm going to be their primary for, like, residency, and I will yeah. never be their primary again. Um, and with my age and pure I don't know how much parents can get in. I can look at my kids' records until they're 18, but how much they can see notes no in? You, to to that. you <laughs> can't see your kids'
0: records until they're 18. Oh, Why see, no, I don't know till, <laughs> so how, how is it that you believe you can see your kids' records until they're 18? Oh, no, it was
1: only from my experience when I was a resident, and at that time, it was Wanting to see my, wanted to look at labs for my patients. Right. Okay. So here's
0: the, problem. here's the problem. We don't need to use my VH. We have EDH. And right. so you're not allowed to look at your children's records through EDH. The <laughs> <laughs> mere fact that you are employed here should not give you greater access to your children's record than any of your patients. I'm surprised don't I don't know that you answer that question. <laughs> so, well, my kids were at Alphabet
1: Day, and I wasn't looking at the record. Right. <laughs> right. I my nurse to look at my when I was a and I had young children, at that time I could get my kids. Right. So, you know what I mean? So what I'm saying is, I don't. I could have gotten any record I wanted from Altech Day about my kids, but I'm, and my understanding was up through maybe I numbers and earbuds.
0: So here's so here's the clarification. This is a real fact. So yes, my Patient Online, the previous portal, allowed you to have full access to patients up to 11 and stopped at 12 because of the commingling of this confidential information. My DH continues to allow you to have proxy access to your children's records up to age 11, which is full access, the same as any access that you might have to your own record. As of age 12, that changes, and you are only currently allowed to have what's called limited access, which allows you to do allergies, school forms that say they're safe for school, which are letters, basically. Um, Secure messaging with your providers, which is nice, and unfortunately, appointment reminder. We have technology, we have built technology that will now allow, once a teen themselves also has a paired access, my idea, of their own, either or both members of the pair, the parents and or the teens, access the record more fully, back to the record that you can see. We have not rolled out yet because it really requires that that has a communication with a member of our medical staff or the meaningful therapeutic relationship with that patient, preferably a PCP, a behavioral health provider, or a reproductive health provider. So that's coming. We want to pilot it. But um, the bigger question, showing is how then we document. And we need to work together with documenting those sensitive pieces of information in parts of EDH that don't get shown in MyDH. So even when you believe you have full access to your own record through MyDH, you don't. There are fields that you, the clinicians can use that aren't shared. And this is important for the reason we probably have a talk coming <laughs> on how to roll up this, this tool. Coming, but I can't pass up the opportunity to give you the preview of what's coming and a reminder, not look at your kids' reference.
1: Quick <laughs> <laughs> question on your summary slide. <clears throat> Point two. Is that fact or is that interpretation in New Hampshire? Which like one? sexual activity does not equal abuse. Does the state of New Hampshire say that?
2: So, no. So that is my interpretation. <clears throat> the definition, I actually have this on a slide somewhere, the definition of sexual abuse in New Hampshire is this. Sexual abuse means the rape, molestation, prostitution, or other forms of sexual exploitation of children or incest. With respect to the definition of sexual abuse, the term child means any individual who is under the age of 18. And this is why risk management told me I had to report anyone under the age of 18. So rape is not defined anywhere in New Hampshire statute. So you can interpret rape in a variety of ways. So this is... To me, less clear than it should be. So, so
0: Kathy gets the last word. Just one
2: comment, Karina. I am so
3: proud of you. thank you.
2: Thank you, Valerie. We've
3: taken an incredibly difficult to talk about subject that is complex and not uh, clear and made it actually very clear for the members of the audience what we are trying to talk about and where the discrepancies lie. And for the rest of med students in the room, I want to just point out that this is where scholarly research can come from. It comes from your patients and your stories and things that you see in the clinic or the ward or the PICU that make you mad or question or you just think about it and it's like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's where some of the best scholarly research comes. So.
2: Thank you, Kathy. Thank you.